This podcast is brought to you by On Track Studio. Hi everyone, this is Matthew and welcome back to Eminem the Podcast Season 3. Hi Michelle. Hello there Matthew, great to see you again. Fantastic to see you in flesh, in person at the On Track Studio in Nambour. And in Nambour, that's right. To start with, we'll do a quick acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the elders, past, present and emerging on the Sunshine Coast and surrounds. We're very lucky to be located on the Sunshine Coast and very lucky to be recording this amazing podcast in Nambour, which is um, a very special spiritual place, as is the rest of the Sunshine Coast. So we certainly acknowledge that we're very lucky. Absolutely. Lovely. Thank you for that, Michelle. Michelle, we have, and devalued listener, an amazing jam-packed episode for you today. We have a really interesting theme that we've really enjoyed investigating and doing some research on. And the theme this week, Michelle, is... Mega influencers. Mega influencers. We're mega interested. We're mighty interested, Michelle. So, you know, mega influencers, okay, the people who are quietly changing our world in their own way. On their own terms, they may influence markets or economies, communities. We have sought out, devalued listener, the M mega influencers, and we've done the research on these incredible lives that have been lived. Why, Michelle? So the listener doesn't have to. That's it. They can just learn as they're driving in their car, listening to the dulcet sounds. We want to make it easy for you to sound really, really clever. But Michelle, quick question before we jump into it. Influencers. Okay, this word has changed, Mm. um, I would say, in the last sort of five to ten years, as now we have people that are making a career out of being an influencer. Indeed, I have two nieces now who've told me that their intention is when they grow up to become influencers. How do you feel about that? Well, my first question to them was, in what realm would you like to be influencing people? Mm -hmm. And Neither of them, God love them, actually understood the question. No. How old are they? Both nine. And they already want to be influencers. I know. This is it. So they're very much influenced themselves by this weird craze, which is young people commentating on other young people Mm. playing a game. Mm. So there's sort of middle middle people um, Mm -hmm, between mm. the experience of a game and a, and the enjoyment. It's it's odd. And yet apparently there's lots of money to be made by Yes. So thanks to the likes of Instagram, TikTok, etc., the word influencer has become a, a job. You know, people are now being paid. I saw one that popped up on one of my feeds not long ago. As, you know, I'm very interested and involved in travel and it was someone who was paid to do an around the world business class ticket, but film it everywhere and, you know, share, share There's that. certainly tougher things to do with your life, aren't there? It's Definitely. not a bad gig. Definitely. But Michelle and I, dear valued listener, are not talking about those influencers. No. We are going a little bit further back and we have chosen to look, like we said before, at perhaps the influencers who at the time didn't really know that they were being a mega influencer. The categorisation or the criteria we've kind of very loosely applied is the idea of um, these people having a legacy that can still be very much, is still very much evident today. 
So if you don't mind, Michelle, I'm going to kick off with my first mega influencer. I can't wait to hear. So I want to talk to you about Catherine Macaulay. Macaulay is her surname. Born on the 2nd of April in 1731, British. Mm-hmm. So Catherine was born into aristocracy, meaning, uh, you know, she was part of the upper echelon of society. Her family had money, you know, they had education. She was fairly well off. And keeping that in the context of 1731, I'm, you know, you're lucky if that's your lot. Absolutely. They were the people who lived above stairs, not Mm. below. Mm. Correct. So she had a good education and she was always a very curious and intellectually driven woman that would ask the questions that people just didn't ask. Perhaps they all popped into their heads, but they didn't ask them. But further, she would seek the answer. So she was intrigued by philosophy, obviously, because a lot of the questions that are asked don't necessarily have an answer. Mm -hmm. But in particular, Roman and Greek philosophers really fascinated her and how the ancient governments created democracy. So she must have had access to a good library, hey? Absolutely. From a young age. Absolutely. And she was really curious about democracy and what it stood for. In her early life, she researched the Roman republics, I believe at university, she argued that the failure to to guard against the inequalities of wealth is what led eventually to the demise of the Roman republics. Okay. Now, if I asked you to simplify that sentence, how would you say that? <sighs> Putting you on the spot. Yeah, you are well and truly. Well, well, I was actually going off on a bit of a tangent in my mind, recognising that the reason that the study of the Roman Empire would be so relevant to people in Britain is that the hedgerows and the design of their streets and so on all comes from when they were conquered by the Roman conquerors. Mm. So I suppose that the the real connection between Catherine's time and the governance structures and the the organisation of the Roman Empire, it it kind of makes sense to see where Catherine fits in that story. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, basically she studied the philosophy of democracy Mm -hmm. and, you know, democracy being, I guess, back then and for a very long time, something that should be infallible, something that shouldn't be able to collapse. But also, I guess, feudal and... Exactly. Yeah. So class systems. Exactly, exactly. So she she sort of posited that the inequalities of wealth within the democratic system are what led to the downfall of the Romans and, you know, pretty bang on, sister. Yes. Because at the end of the day, what we know is that those who held power also held coin and those that held coin were the ones that made the laws and, and the decisions. And from our perspective, you can see that it's it's in the future, that we're, we're Catherine's sitting in history, our European history is mm-hmm. in the future, but not so very far in the future. And it's then with the conquering of Terra Nullius, etc., that the British Empire is at its peak. The reason why she was so intrigued by this and asked the questions and did the research was because at the time in 17 31 or or around about then maybe within 10 years on either side I don't have the exact number but you know there was a British civil war and the, exactly as you just pointed out the British government followed the same democratic feudal system as did everyone really who was in that European culture and it was happening again because what was happening in the British civil war was once again the people living below the stairs going you know we're actually 80% if not 90% we've kind of had enough let us up the stairs. We're still human. But it was the exact same system that she had been researching that she she realised in that moment. There's something wrong here. The inequality of wealth 
is what is leading to the demise of this structure. Pretty cool as a beneficiary of that, that she was prepared to call it out really and acknowledge it. She was, but not only did she call it out, Michelle, strap yourself in. This this woman, she put it on the table and she fought for it. So it's amazing. So she was, throughout her career, she was a writer. Her most substantial work was entitled A History of England from the Ascension of James I to the that of the Brunswick Line. This was published in 1763. And this work told the history of the English Civil War as the outcome of the struggle of the commons to retain their liberties against the deposing of the monarch, retaining its rights. Oh, wow. Okay, so she just wrote a book and actually put it front and centre of why the commons responded the way they did in response to the democratic system and the monarchy. But she was a crit- she was critical, very critical. She criticised the policy of the British in the lead up to the American War of Independence and was subsequently welcomed by the Americans after their independence as a, a founder of their new land. Okay, let me put this into context for you. And I'm going to simplify this for everybody, mainly myself, dear valued listener, but for all of us. The result of the British Civil War was that the Commons got on the Mayflower and pissed off because the monarchy just off with their head. You know what I mean? So there was no compromise in the the 1700s around, I'm asking for this because the system is failing me. The door wasn't even opened. You were asking a brick wall. So, and this went on for years and years and years and caused major civil unrest in Britain and problems, 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 but nothing was addressed as she pointed out, because the indifference to the inequality of wealth was just black and white. So to simplify it, a lot of the commons, a big portion of Britain at that time went, well, fuck this, we're getting on a boat and we're going to go see if we can live somewhere else where we can restructure and live in a place where we can have our own governing rules and foundations. I mean, it makes sense from a governance and a, yeah, how do we organise society perspective, but it also makes a lot of sense to want to get out of Britain at that time because mm-hmm. it kept burning down. <laughs> there it were did. lots and lots of rats mm-hmm. and we've talked about the whores, whores everywhere. Whores everywhere. There was a ripper. He was Oh, no yes. Good. Yeah. But see, what happened was, okay, so a big chunk got on the Mayflower and mm-hmm. went over to what was then, you know, native Indian land. But the the monarchy wasn't just prepared to let that happen, which is where the war ensued. They they got on a boat after them and said, get your asses back here. Hold on, we you're want our, to be in charge of that. You're our penny beggars. <laughs> yes. I said, clean my floor. <laughs> I'm not going to clean my floor. So after this, this group of commons, and I don't actually know, this is where I guess an American history professor would be able to tell us the numbers and Mm. whatnot, but I'm fascinated by it. After they arrived there, you know, the monarchy was right behind them, you know, with the little hook to pull them back onto the boat and go, no, 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 you come back over here. And that resulted in a war, obviously. But this civil unrest and this civil war had been happening. It was just all kind of one melding pot. Yeah, yeah. So Catherine Macaulay was in the thick of this because when she released this book examining the inequality of wealth and how that led to the demise of the Roman Republic and then mirrored that with what was happening today, after the Poms got back on their boat and went home and went, well, well, I guess we'll just leave them here in this native Indian land and let bygones be bygones, the people that had remained on American soil or as it was known back then, they invited her over because her point of view and her research around what she had done was tantamount to the problems that they'd just escaped from. It's fascinating that she was given the sort of sort of respect and latitude at that time. I mean, as a woman, 
Was her father someone who was listened to? Was was there that kind yes. of? Well, she came from aristocracy and she was very well educated. But further than that, from what I can tell from the research, honey, she was the only one that had the balls to actually stand up and go, um, a spade's a spade. Mm. So, you know, she was fascinated by liberty. She thought the idea of freedom and liberty was something that every single human being should have the right to explore and experience. With a big caveat, which is, but we still want the class system to stay in well, position, is that right? Like, absolutely. Yeah. And it's easy for her to say that yeah. because she was a good part of that class system. But what she was trying to express was that, you know, just because of the democratic system that we may exist in, it doesn't mean that the wealthy are the only ones that can pass laws. Because you've got to remember back then, th- there was no house. Mm. It was just the monarchy that mm. was making the decisions and then sprinkling democracy on that. But there was no call to action. There was no conversation. It was, this is now the new rule. The king has said so. Sign, stamp here. Thank you. Bye. And generally speaking, as we now know, that is not the democratic process. That's it. Yeah. You know, that's socialism at its best, you know, in a, in a way. Like, it's, it's one best way. Well, the monarchy doesn't tax anymore the way that it used to, too. So she believed that political freedom corresponds with being governed by rational law and that rational law are the laws of nature. Now let that sink in for a hot minute. She said, how can one person decide what liberty and freedom look like if they are not governed by the natural instincts that we have? She followed very much then the Lutheran approach, which was to say that the biblical approach, which is all about man, man being in charge of nature, the Lutheran and the more Protestant attitude Mm -hmm. uh, was to say, well, maybe man and nature are one. Correct. Which leads me to that she emphatically believed that people should be governed by a law that is not arbitrary but rather corresponds with what fits and what is able to be apprehended by reason. Not by birthright. Correct. Mm. So she kind of challenged the whole system, despite the fact that she sat in it in a kind of nice castle in a pretty area with her hair did. Oh, well, that was a terrible thing. With to her say. hair did. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Like, so she was, in other words, saying laws can't be passed because it suits the 5% of people who are making those laws. Laws have to be passed that can be comprehended and apprehended through reasoning across the land. And it's an irony that's delivered throughout history that it's only the wealthy with privilege who are ever going to be able to say these things because they're the only ones who are going to be able to work it out in their minds because they're educated and on it goes. And at the time, there was the rise of what was known as the Stuart absolutism governance, and this was a one best way. So in conjunction with the monarchy, Britain at the time was moving into what was known as this absolutism phase where that was it. You you get told what the law is. Yep. And even if that goes against everything that you can apprehend and comprehend, if it fights against the laws of nature, you just had to do it. And she actually stood up and went, no, no, no. Mm. This will not work for anybody based on the research and the understanding and the, of the ancient philosophers and on, you know, the Greek and the Roman systems. She went, hang on a minute. We've seen this before and it ain't going to work. So she was very loud and proud in fighting this absolutism, so much so that she rebelled against it and she was the first one to coin the term that the democratic system should be rightly balanced. So she was actually considered one of the first aristocratic republicans. 
So she was doing all of that work in Britain and was invited to America because of, on the strength of the work she'd done in Britain. Yes. And, and then the work she, that she'd had published. Right. She, so she called the monarchy, as supported by the aristocracy, the very worst species of government. Oh, she's not wrong, really. No, she's not. But she was the first one in mm. that entire, like you can imagine with all the whores and penny beggets and boats going to and fro. If you lived in a world where you were told what to do and the commons generally did that because it was that or die, mm. she burnt it all down and went, this is the absolute worst form of governance if it is wealth-driven aristocracy combining with a monarchy. Further to that, because of her position in culture and society being part of the bourgeois or the aristocracy that she was calling out, yeah. rather than having her head lopped off, she was actually given a right of reply. So in that rebellion that she thrust before they just lopped her head off, they said, okay, well, what, what are you going to do that's better? Mm-hmm. Show us your side of the coin. You know, let's, okay, go. And, and then she damn well did. Didn't she, though? So she created and supported a model of democratic constitution that is made up of a bicameral government that includes a Senate and a House of Representatives. Now, you and I know this to be how most of our countries, you know, West, Western countries are governed today. This was all her response, right? The smaller Senate is around 50 members. These people debate and propose the laws. The larger House of Representatives are elected by the people, mm. the Commons, for the people. They also debate, but they don't propose laws. They instead accept or reject the proposals offered by the Senate. In other words, the Senate, which kind of already exists in that aristocratic court, monarchy. Yeah. yeah. She said, where's the buffer? Yes. So why don't we have a House of Representatives that our people have voted for, the Commons? It's made up of a much larger House that has representatives from different parts of the country. And once the Senate has proposed and offered law, it goes to the House of Representatives for a vote. Obviously it works because it's still in place. Well, she was single-handedly responsible for the government that we now know as the United States of America. Goodness me. Catherine Macaulay, in her response to what happened in the British Civil War, created the very first democratic, republican, House of Representatives, Senate governance. And it was so successful. Australia has it. Britain certainly has it now. America has it. Canada has it. I don't know the rest, but I'm sure there are tons. In other words, the inequality that she recognised due to wealth, she went, enough. You people in your 5% and your little Scrooge McDuck diving through the coins can't make these laws anymore without us signing off on it or them signing off on it or the people signing off on it talk about a mega influencer. Well, it was never, ever not going to be supported by the common people, was it? She was guaranteed of having plenty of support. And in a beautiful, eloquent way. Yeah. So what happened was she created the foundation for that governing system in the United States. And so much so that she was then invited to move there and live there and help actually facilitate the change. And she did. And like every good woman in a position of power and influence, she didn't tear down the establishment in doing it. No, she didn't. She complimented the establishment. That's right, because the Senate remains. Yeah, yeah. And the Senate, the idea of a Senate goes all the way back to Roman and Greek times, right? Yeah. The Senate being the 10 or so men in their sheets and their grapes 
who are the ones that actually make the decisions. But what she said, now we're getting to a level of wealth mm. where the commons have to have authority. Yeah, it and the House of Lords can't continue to make decisions for everybody in yep. the country. It's not going to continue to fly. And what she did too was probably avoid much more bloody conflict and maybe longer periods of conflict. Absolutely. She's paved the way inadvertently for mm. how you and I are able to probably sit here and have this conversation today. And many of the laws that you and I have experienced, because I mean, I'm assuming that most people would know this, but when the Senate of a country proposes law, if the House of Representatives, if the vote doesn't go in its way, it does not happen. Now, it can be overturned by some judicial systems. There are loopholes there, but that creation allowed for so much more access of what she coined the term as apprehensive and natural law. In other words, everybody has to have buy-in, you know, everybody in the land will elect one or two people to become in the House of Representatives to be their voice. And when these new laws are brought down, this voice will be heard. Well, honey, you, my dear Catherine McCauley, are a mega influencer. She moved there, she helped set them all up, and she lived the rest of her life there, Michelle. But I want to throw one little nuggy at you. In 1790, she wrote letters on education, which she called a moral necessity, claiming that all levels of wealth deserved education. And I'd like to give us a little throwback to season, I think it's one. So that book was later reviewed by and heavily influenced the work of Mary Wollstonecraft. Oh, there's a name we know and love. Indeed, Mary, I think, is from both seasons one and two. Yeah, she did because yeah. I got so excited. I said, That's more, it. more, more. Yeah. So Catherine McCauley actually was one of the predecessors to Wollstonecraft that began the inspiration. Now, McCauley herself wasn't necessarily known as a feminist, and that's not what we're talking about today, but she certainly wrote things around education being spread to absolutely everybody that incited people like Wollstonecraft to begin her journey. Exactly. And you can kind of see the lineage down to Mary Wollstonecraft setting up her educational establishments for women and creating opportunities for more Catherine Macaulay's to be created. That's, that's my, fascinating. That's I love my it. first mega influence for you, Michelle. I'm a bit of a fan. I think she's an icon. Of Ms. Macaulay. And over to you. Who have we Thanks. got for you today, darling? Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about some depression era and prohibition era people who were very influential in slag grog running. Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, we got an accent, people. Yeah, yeah. You know about your bootlegging? Oh, so we're still in America. We're in America. Okay, bootlegging. We're in America. We're in America, but much after Catherine's lifetime, although there are some overlaps. I'm going to talk to you about two really fascinating influences. One, a bloke whose name eventually created the term the real McCoy, and one, a woman whose moniker was Moonshine Mary. Oh my God, I'm obsessed with her already. Now, before I take you through those people, I'm going to give you a little backgrounder, some quick history reminders. The Depression. The Depression was from 1920 through to 1933. So it was 13 years of pure hell. The Depression was a result of the stock market crash Mm -hmm. in America and it set off a tidal wave across the developed world of extreme financial and economic ruin and hardship at the geopolitical level. In a nutshell, from what I know, their economy imploded, right? Imploded, literally. The stock market collapsed and lots of people collapsed with it. So 
the depression also was subsequent to the kind of golden age in America. So in 1920, things were hot, the flappers were around, there was lots of gin, lots of champagne, lots of Gatsby, and that's one of the prescient wonders of F. Scott Fitzgerald's writing that you can see as a contemporary reader what's about to happen after the excesses that he documents. So the Prohibition era, it was between 1920 and 1933, and it was as a result of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America. And what it prohibited which was really significant, was the production, importation, transportation and sale of alcohol in the United States. Was this connected directly to the Depression? There's a fascinating overlap in the time frame. So the Great Depression started in 1929. That was when the major fall in the stock prices in the United States occurred. And then the economic contagion, what happened was in September, the stock market crashed. From then, 1929, right through to about 1939, the economy was in a great depression. Which also includes World War One. Exactly. Which is interesting as well. And I just want to quickly point out that amendment, thank you, Catherine McCauley, because that would have been the Senate. Yes, exactly. The Senate would have proposed that new law and guess what? The House of Representatives would have had a say in whether that was passed and inked or not. Just a little connection. And you know who wrote the Constitution were the Mayflower people. The Prohibition era is really what we're most concerned about, but the overlap with the Depression era is something of great note Mm -hmm. because, frankly, I would have felt like I needed a freaking drink Mm -hmm. if I was feeling undernourished and worried about where my next... Can I have those dates again, please, when Prohibition kicked in? Prohibition is from 1920. So nine years before the Depression kicked in. Correct, to 1933. Interesting. So 1929 was when the Great Depression started Mm -hmm. and it went for a full 10 years right through to 1939. Understood. So Prohibition was preceded by the temperance movement. Oh, my God. Okay, I've got to tell you a little story. I've got to interrupt you. Go ahead. I haven't warned you about. When I was 14 years old at St. Joseph's High School at Geelong, this was an all-boys Catholic school that I went to, I was already heavily involved in drama. They put on a play that was called How the West Was Warped, and I played, because we are an all-boys school, I played Miss Frost, the leader of the Anti-Temperance League, (gasps) and I had a song that was called Down With The Demon Drink. And I remember the words. I was so good in this role, wigged up, frocked up. It was my first drag performance that literally afterwards I had mothers come and go, we didn't know they brought a girl in to just do this one role. And you were saying, yeah, I'll just take off my lashes. As as soon as you said the word temperance, you took me. I remember the wig. What was her name? Uh, Miss Frost. Miss Frost. I can tell you who she will have been based on. Go. A lady called Carrie Nation who... That sounds like a drag name if I've ever heard one. Well, in all of the photos, she looks so pissed off. (laughs) She looks really annoyed, Ms Nation. She looks like she's on her way to annoying a whole society full of people. I played her. Taking the demon drink off her. Mm. So where she came from, your Miss Frost, is from the temperance movement, Mm. she will certainly have been a member of a Protestant church in America. She was, absolutely. So they were a little bit underhand the way that they proceeded with the temperance movement. They started off by saying, look, moderation's a good idea. Just moderate how much you drink. Then that morphed into encouraging drinkers to help each other 
to resist temptation. So you can start to see the start of the 12-step program there. I was, I was there. literally about to say the birth of AA. Exactly. And that idea of peer pressure and then ultimately the movement demanded local, state and national government prohibit alcohol outright altogether. I do wonder, was there an increase? It sounds very staged that they had this sort of first step moderation, second step and so forth. I wonder if there was an increase in societal negativity. Were people just diving into the whiskey bins more? Were there more accidents? What was causing this? Thank you so much for the question because the answer is freaking fascinating. The bottom line is that by the time the temperance movement was getting some traction and making some significant inroads in the minds of the people who were making policy, the reason that that started to really pick up momentum Mm. is that at that time, each person in America was drinking their own body weight in hard cider that had been made from all the apples that they were forced to grow. So each person had a well, an allocation of a certain number of gallons of cider per year. And this is right down to quite young children, (laughs) right up to people as as old as they come. Wow. So, yes, most certainly the temperance movement grew out of both a licentiousness and a concern about the poverty, Mm. that this kind of extreme drunkenness and extreme acceptance, I guess, Mm. of of drunkenness was happening. But also the fact that by then big machines were starting to be developed in the Industrial Revolution and you can't have pissed people running machines because they locked their arms off and other bits of themselves. So not only did people like Carrie Nation look around and go, well, look, there's a little bit too much drunkenness happening here, but additionally, the blokes who are running industry said, and also we sort of need people to not be drunk when they come to work and be able to work long hours, many days per week. So you can start to see the way that industry was benefiting from the puritanical approach that Protestants took to drinking. So the reason that I needed to give you that background is that in America, to deal with the fact that they couldn't drink, people started to say, well, if we can't buy it and we can't import it, we can't get it in from Canada, because at the same time, by the way, Canada had completely prohibited alcohol from 1918 to 1920. Just two years, though. Exactly, because they worked out, oh, not only should we be able to drink again, but also we can be shipping some serious product over the border, Right. So which no, is exactly 19, what happened. I love it. 1920, when America went, we agree, we're stopping. I love Canada for this, aren't they always aren't the ones? Aren't they wonderful? They just flip that law quickly and go, oh, you know what? I can make some coin. It's Actually, we might change our approach to that. It's back on board. Exactly. Love them. I love it, love it, love it. So the term bootlegging comes from the original use of the word, which was around the trade of alcohol between white people and Native American Indian people. So that was way back in the the early stages of white settlership. 1700s. Yep. So the way that it worked was that you put your concealed flask of liquor into your boot top. And so that's where the term bootlegging comes from. So it's hidden. Correct. Mm -hmm. And that became absolutely necessary as the temperance movement gained traction Traction. and indeed then as it led to policy. So several really big players in the bootlegging trade and the bootlegging trade was bringing its illegal alcohol in from a variety of places, including Canada, but also places like the Caribbean. So William McCoy is our first bootlegger who we're going to have a little bit of a look at. 
His surname is associated with the concept of the real McCoy, which describes a person or a thing that's authentic mm-hmm, or genuine. genuine. Yep. Yeah. So it's widely sort of recognised that it came into popular culture around the time of the bootlegging exploits of William McCoy and the Prohibition era. He was a notorious American bootlegger and he was born in 1877 in Syracuse, New York. New York is close to Canada. He became a run runner quite young in his life and he lived to the ripe old age of 71, which was pretty old in those days. He became known for his very high quality bootleg liquor, mm. which he smuggled into the United States from the Caribbean on his boat called the Tomoka. T-O-M-O-K-A. According to legend, he had the best reputation for selling unadulterated, untainted liquor. Now, one of the problems with importing was that you wanted to try and dilute as much as you could to make the most out of it and to keep some for yourself. Which is what still happens today, darling. Uh And if you want to have a conversation about the drugs getting into countries, let's keep it real. What is made in the first backyard where it's created to what you get when it arrives on shore Ain't nowhere near as pure. It ain't the real McCoy. That's exactly Right. Mm, so, not, that I, not that we would know. Well, bathtubs continue, I think, to play quite a role in the production of illicit substances, and they certainly did back then. Mm. So literally you were potentially drinking gin that had toe jam included. McCoy was eventually caught by the, the Coast Guard in 1923, and he served nine months in prison. After he was released, he then went back to the Caribbean and resumed his smuggling activities <laughs> until he died of a heart attack in 1948. Hang on a minute. When was he born again? 1877. So 23, he was arrested when he was 46. Mm, So mm. he would have been doing this game for a hot minute. That's right. And so the real McCoy came around because he was known, I guess, in New York where speakeasies and all this sort of stuff during the Prohibition was epic. That's where we're going with the story next. That's exactly right. Oh, I jumped ahead, Michelle. I'm so sorry. So the favourite speakeasy in New York was called PDT, Please Don't Tell. Oh, I love it. You know how you get in there? Knock, knock, knock. Via a telephone booth. Shut up. The telephone booth is in a place called Criff's Dogs. It's a hot dog joint and it's still there. So that's one of the places we're going when we go to New York. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. And I was wondering whether that little origin story is where Superman changing in a telephone booth might come from. Shut Mm. Interesting sort of an idea, isn't it? Yeah, that it's a trap door where you can go and put on a different outfit and become a different person because once you go through that trap door and you get into the speakeasy and have some real McCoy whiskey or whatever it was. That's right, anything goes. So the speakeasies were either called the speakeasy a blind Mm. pig or a gin joint. The reason the speakeasy term was coined was that apparently you needed to sort of whisper to be admitted and there was probably some secret whisper. Oh, my God. I absolutely love it. So there you go. So, yes, that's where most of the alcohol got drunk in places called speakeasies. So we're now going to have a quick look at a lady called Moonshine Mary. Now, Moonshine Mary was also a bootlegger like McCoy, but she's probably an amalgam of several women. So we're going to have a quick look at some of the background stories of where she might come from. Moonshine was also a term that was used for illegal alcohol created by First Nations people and sold to white people. 
So that kind of trade, unfortunately, in America has a pretty checkered history. There are several women who are probably the background for Moonshine Mary and they were running bootlegged liquor throughout Prohibition. So the notables, one was Mary Matilda Thompson. She lived in the mountains of North Carolina and she was known for her expertise in producing high quality moonshine. She reportedly ran a successful bootlegging operation with her husband, Cleel Lee Thompson. During the 1920s and 1930s, she became known as the queen of the bootleggers. Now that too was a moniker that was contested. Mary White, in 1921, federal authorities found $5,000 in bootlegging cash on Mary White. Now, in the reporting around the time, it's quite disgraceful the way she's described. She's described as a swarthy, complexioned woman. What does that mean? Probably black or Latina. And that she was missing her front teeth and she was stout and stocky. After she was so, sentenced... So, hang on, she was sampling some of her own goods. Mm, I think a, maybe. Her chance. I think maybe that's where the teeth went. After God. she was sentenced, the press asked her if she was indeed the queen of the bootleggers, to which she replied, I wish the hell I was. Moonshine Mary was probably also a Milwaukee woman who isn't named in the literature. However, in 1925, she admitted to earning $30,000 a year, every year. And when she was caught, she was only fined 200 bucks. So she still netted in the year she was caught 29,800 bucks, which and would have been millions, yeah, I'd say. No, no, not millions, but I was going to say, devalued listener, we have done the comparison. We looked at what 30,000 American dollars in that year would have been worth today, and it was about half a million. Over the course of a few years, she would have been, yeah, yeah she millions. Would have been loaded. And she got caught too? She did, but she was only ever fined for that bucks. 200 bucks, baby. So she, so she will right have been person. kicking back big time. She knew the right person. And it's interesting because Milwaukee is a stone's throw from the Canadian border as well. Exactly, that's right. So you, you see where it all was Yeah, the Canadians uh, just centered. capitalised on this exactly. movement. I love them. I love it. It's gorgeous. They went, it's fine. We can help. Exactly. Denver's Esther Matson is probably also someone who's part of the Moonshine Mary mystique. She was 22 when she was caught and she was sentenced to church every Sunday for two years. Oh, that's so temperance, isn't mm-hmm. it? That was in 1930 she was caught. And Sentenced Mary Louise, isn't it hilarious, Cecilia Texas Gwinnon, who was a bootlegger, <laughs> nightclub owner and actress during mm-hmm. Prohibition, and we all know what actress was a euphemism for, mm. she was known for her wit, her charm and her clubs in New York City, such as the El Fay Club and Club in Time. They were popular destinations for wealthy patrons and celebrities. Other cool women included the hen house bootlegger Esther Clark because she stored her liquor in her Kansas chicken coop. (laughs) (laughs) And the greatest female bootlegger of all time was Gertrude Cleo Lithgow. She was a legitimate licensed liquor wholesale in Nassau in the Bahamas. She was a majestic looking lady who was mistaken for being Russian, French and Spanish, but she was American. She was tied to a British liquor distributor. And it seems that the courts just didn't have a stomach for putting women into prison. And that's really, you start to get a bit of a feel for these women probably having been patsies or mules. Absolutely. Because they 
weren't put into prison much. Most of the time they were just trying to keep a roof over the head of mm. their families and many women suffered desertion in those days. Absolutely. The bloke couldn't get any money in. He became a drinker. And if we compare William McCoy's sentence to a year going to church on a Sunday sentence for the women, you can see the disparity loud and clear. It's quite hilarious really, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that women were both at the forefront of the temperance movement and also at the forefront of the supply of illegal liquor during the ensuing prohibition. Beautiful. Well, on that delicious Madonna moment, I'd like to thank you, Michelle. I learnt a ton about Moonshine Mary and the real McCoy and I just, as I said to you before, we go there when we go there and it's so visceral and I hope you enjoyed learning about Catherine McCauley. I loved learning about Catherine McCauley and I think now I want to go on Vogue in a speakeasy with you. It's been a pleasure, Michelle. Dear Valued Listener, please follow us on Instagram. It's at M&M the podcast, which reads as Mandem the podcast. Feel free to like and subscribe. We're on Spotify. Please share with your friends. Send us a message. Reach out. We really appreciate all the feedback that we get from you guys. And until next time, Michelle, thank you so much for this episode. That's goodbye from me. Bye.